when looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up? Excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, gnarly! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. I knew it, I'm surrounded by assholes. And good evening, friends! Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shot suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, all right? I need help. E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Oh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh, my God. Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even keel or having extreme depression. Oh, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. Hi, this is Booker T, five-time WCW champion and general manager of Friday Night SmackDown. You listen to Crazy Train Radio. Now, can you dig that, sucker? Folks, the gentleman on the phone right now is the better half of a tag team duo of writers out of the Montreal area, uh, Pat LaFrance. Pat has written a number of books, and he's involved with the Eighth Wonder of the World book that just came out from ECW Press, which actually it's been a couple busy months for Pat, because he was also involved with Dark Side of the Ring, the Dino Bravo episode, and the Andre documentary. Pat, how are you doing? Very good, very good. I know it's a mouthful there, but it has been a busy couple of months for you, hasn't it? Yeah, well, uh, when you release a book and you're involved with the Dark Side of the Ring series, even if it's just for one episode, 
uh, it keeps uh, social media busy. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's for sure. But we're actually talking about the book currently, for the most part, with uh, Andre, The Eighth Wonder of the World. Now, was it the documentary you got involved with first or deciding to write this book? Oh, it was the documentary. The documentary led <laughs> to the book in the sense that it's always a project Bertrand Bear who co-wrote the book with me uh, and I wanted to do. But for some reason, we worked on, on other projects and uh, it was always on, on the back burner, you know, and... Uh, when I was involved as a field producer on the documentary, uh, we immediately contacted our editors at ECW Press, Michael Holmes, and, uh, you know, told them about the project of, you know, writing most comprehensive um, biography we could uh, do on Under the Time, because it's never been done before. And the, the one that WWE as published, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, was more or less just a list of his best matches in the WWE and almost play-by-play uh, of, uh, of, 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 of the matches, which was not what we had in mind, you know. So um, so we, we, we got the green light, and we uh, we started working on it for you know, the past two years. Okay. Now, obviously with, and I'm sure most people realize, when you're doing an hour documentary versus a book, with a book you can go further down the rabbit hole, so to speak, in terms of going into more detail of different stories where, you know, obviously with an hour documentary you only have so much time to fit so many stories in. Did you have it uh, have a lot of the information prior to putting the book together, or was it more rabbit hole diving? Well, um, I mean, we got information. I got information from documentary, but I think what the documentary brought uh, more than anything else is uh, the contacts, because. The the, the 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 filming crew uh, had brought me to France to meet with Andre's brothers. So, because I was on the documentary, I'm the one who are asking who is asking the questions uh, off camera uh, to both of uh, Andre's brothers and also to uh, uh, the hotel doorman that we see at the very end of the documentary. So. Because uh, I was the only one speaking French, right? So what we did when we got the green light for the book is that I went back to France and meet with the brothers again to go even deeper into questions because uh, there's so much you can actually do in an 86-minute documentary. But we knew we could go and dig more uh, in the book so there were tons of questions that I wanted to ask that uh, that we didn't uh, when we were there the first time with the documentary crew. And also uh, another person that I met because of the documentary is Jackie McCauley, who for the longest time with her late husband, Frenchie Bernard, uh, were uh, the ones keeping, uh, the, the ones staying at the ranch. 
uh, with Andre. So when Andre was uh, wrestling, you know, and it went world, while we had Jackie and Frenchie uh, staying there and keeping, you know, and taking care of, of the day-to-day business at the farm. So, so I also met her through the documentary, and I, uh, you know, spent hours on the phone talking about uh, Andre's, uh, uh, you know, from from she, she knew him from 1980 until his passing. So we spent hours of of talking about Andre. So 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 that's what the documentary brought uh, mostly. So so. Uh, it was uh, it was a good thing that I actually was working on it because uh, I don't know if I would have ever met with any of the brothers. Yeah, so with the digging of information and separating fact and fiction between both projects, and I know you've been a lifelong wrestling fan for anybody who's not familiar with Pat's work. Was there something that you found really interesting that you may not have known or you had mis- maybe misconstrued until you found the uh, truth at doing the research? Well, there's always stuff, you know. You, you hear stories, and you, even even in, you know, even I didn't, uh, didn't know everything that was true or not true before researching them. Because there's stuff that you – it makes sense, you know. There's stuff that you read about them, and you say, yeah, you know, that could have happened, and then you researched it. And lo and behold, it, it, that didn't happen quite the same way. I'm thinking right here when uh, there was a story where um, Jerry the King Lawler had fought uh, Andre, and Lawler wanted to be so badly on the cover of a wrestling magazine because at the time it hadn't happened yet for him. Uh, and... Um, wrestled Andre, sending the results to PWI, to Bill After, uh, and um, and as the story goes, well, Lawler did the first, his first uh, his first cover with the tagline, "The night the midget beat a giant," because you know the the way the story was written inside the magazine, Lawler had defeated the, the Andre. And you read about this in Jerry Jarrett's book and Bill After's book and Jerry Lawler's book, and none of them have the right story. So, so, so you know, it's kind of surprising because you're, you're reading this and say, yeah, okay, makes sense. You know, magazine and, and late 70s, late, you know, early 80s, you know, that kind of stuff could, could have happened. But, you know, when you start researching and, and and talking to the people from the magazine and getting a copy of the magazine to to see what's going on. Well, Lawler never made the cover of that magazine. The story is is half true, you know. And and there were so many half true stories uh, in in Andre's career. And and what you end up finding is most of those stories were told by Andre himself. It was another era. It was the kayfabe era. You're protecting your character, protecting the business. So if, you know, the late Ray Stevens once said, if a story is good, if a story is good enough to tell, it's good enough to be exaggerated. Well, <laughs> Andre exaggerated 
many of those stories and some people didn't know any better, you know, and, and, and it, it's like the, I don't know if you remember this, but in the early 80s, uh, there was um, a piece done on Andre for the Sports Illustrated, and, and there's, it's mentioned in the documentary as well, uh, written by uh, Terry Todd, who, who passed away uh, uh, a couple of years ago. And um, that story was for the longest time, the Bible on Andre, everything that you wanted to know. It was, I think, an 11-page story on Andre. Everything you wanted to know on Andre was supposedly there and supposedly true. And, and, and when you read it today with all the knowledge and all the research that I have on Andre, and we do talk about it in the book as well, I mean, most of those things are not true. And, and, and for the longest time, it was, it was even translated in other languages. So, so many people around the world are thinking, well, you know, this is the true on Andre. And unless someone tells them that, you know, it's not true, well, they're going to see, you're going to keep believing that. So that was one of the goals for us. It, it was to debunk every myth possible, every urban legend, every fairy tale story on Andre and making sure that uh, the truth would be, uh, would be told once and for all. Well, I'd be curious to know, and maybe it's covered more in the book because I know it goes more in depth, and I have read most of it. But Andre was known as such a brilliant guy from most accounts that I've heard when people talk about him. Spoke multiple languages and had a fair knowledge of, you know, different cultures as far as food and wine and all that stuff. But And I also know or was led to believe that Vince Sr., and then Vince Jr. handled a lot of the booking for Andre. Well, obviously, he came up in the business during a time of, you know, there wasn't agents and lawyers and all making deals like you would in other sports or entertainment. Do you, have you learned how articulate Andre was when it came to business in terms of making sure he was getting the most money possible for his unique brand? I don't think it was. it was taking care of this side of the business at all. I think yeah, he, he always had he always had Vince. Vince Senior was the one booking Andre until probably the very end, until until his health uh deteriorated and, and, and you know he sold the company to uh he ended up uh selling the company to his son and but up until that point um it was it was it was him who was taking care of, of Andre. Um and then it became Vince Junior who was taking care of Andre's booking. And Andre always had someone with him on the road that was taking care of other stuff. So uh, um I'm I'm really, really not sure that Andre I mean, he knew, he probably knew what he was making, right? But at the same time I'm not sure he was really, really um, speaking out about it or uh, negotiating with with any of the McMahons. Um, they were treating him pretty well. You know, there's yeah. a story that we tell in the book where, because um, 
Andre became partner with Gino Brito and Frank Valois in 1980 in Montreal. So International Wrestling, before it was called out, it was called out Sack Promotions, and it was the three of them. And then Senior had told Gino, anytime Andre needs money, you don't even call me, you give him the money, and we'll take care of you later. And and so so Gino started uh, bringing extra cash money on him. So if he was out with Andre, and Andre asked him for a grand or two thousand dollars, Gino would reach his pocket, give him the money, and sure enough, he was calling Vince Senior, no questions asked, and he was getting reimbursed. So so he was really taking care of. So, so I don't think that it was really about, uh, well, how much do I make and, and is it enough or, uh, and especially not taking care of this matter himself. So it was always, uh, the McMahons. Uh, I'm guessing that, that the deals later in his life, you know, when, when, when he, he uh, when, uh, WWF stopped using him, so so whatever he was making, let's say with all Japan, probably that was him, that was probably Andal himself, or he could have asked somebody else. But I think by that time, that it was it was probably like in the, in the for a year or two at the very end of his of his career. But if not, it was. Yeah, where we last caught you there, you were discussing maybe that last year or two with like his uh, going goings to Japan and things like that. Not all. Yeah, exactly. So, so that to me, that's the only time that Andre would have uh, would have negotiated something by himself since he came to North America in 1971. Um, because before McMahon. He was he was booked by the Grand Prix Wrestling Office and Paul Vacham. So uh, and in 1973 he was he was with uh, with McMahon Senior. So and during all of this time, whether it was Vince Senior or Vince Junior, um, they were the one making the deals. Andre, I'm positive Andre never never made a deal uh, himself. So 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 that was not. That was not. I mean, he didn't like he didn't like certain things, and he would speak up about that. Okay, so uh, let's say let's say Andrew wasn't the biggest fan of working multiple multiple times a a, a day. You know, because he, he would do a lot of those battle royal plus a regular match or handicap match on the show, but he didn't. I mean, he, 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 that happened often, but and 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 I'm not sure he did like them that much, but you know that that's the way it was. But sometimes, but there would, were certain times that he would speak up and say, "Hey, you know, whatever." But 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 some other times he would also work a turn match because there would be there would be a match uh, a show in the afternoon in one town. And then a show at night in another town, let's say on a weekend or something. 
So now he could he could work three matches during the day, and he didn't like that. That was that was a lot. So 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 he would he would he would speak up for for that. But uh, other than that, he wasn't taking care of the money side at all. Oh, okay. But speaking of Japan, as you mentioned in that uh, answer there, the one thing I found interesting in reading in the book was about a shoot that happened in Japan and where, if I remember the name correctly, Inoki had ended the match after like 26 minutes or something. You know, I always would think that if Andre wasn't happy with something going on business-wise in the ring, he would have tried to end that sooner. You know what I mean? Instead of trying to continue to work the match and work pro wrestling style. Yeah, but by the time the match happened, uh, what year was it? 1986, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with uh, Akira Maeda. And uh, by by that time, Andre's health wasn't the same as it was uh, 10 years prior. So, so his strength and his arm uh, weren't the same. Uh, his back hurt him a lot. Uh, it, it, it was it was a different Andre. So 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 when he talked uh, with uh, Maeda, he, he, I mean Maeda wanted to somehow prove something, uh, and and the match didn't start as a shoot. It, it became a shoot because of Andre, you know, Andre thinking that Maeda was too stiff that, you know, he didn't want to cooperate, and, and then he stopped selling for him, and then Maeda and starting to throw potatoes at, at Maeda as well, and, you know, it just escalated from from that point on, uh, and it became, it became that shoot where it wasn't going nowhere, you know, and, and, you know, he ended up just coming to the ring, and just finishing the match, and and I mean, there, there's no winner, you know. There's like there were no pins, there were there were nothing, uh, and and you know he just stopped the match out of respect for Andre because he didn't want to see Maeda uh, doing more damage to Andre or, uh, or or keep doing what he was doing, and he saw that you know the match wasn't going, the match wasn't going over with the crowd, the match wasn't going anywhere. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's it. But it became that big match that everybody wanted to see still to this day because it's, it's something that you can't even fa- phantom, you know, to see Andre in his shoot. But it was an Andre in his prime. Andre in 72 probably would have been a whole different deal than, than he was uh, more than a decade after. So, so, so that's the deal with that match and, and, uh, um, and yeah, I mean it, it's available there. You know, if people want to see it, it's on YouTube, I think. Uh, but uh, I mean, don't expect match of the year caliber there. <laughs> oh yeah, but still, you know, maybe it's just a fan of me, or if you want to call me a Mark, or whatever the case may be. Okay, you know, at least Andre would have had enough. Yeah, he was going to have to do the match and everything else like that. But you would think, you know, and I don't know too much as far as the Japanese culture in terms of wrestling, but you would think that Andre, at, by that point, yeah, he wasn't in his best health physically, but you think he'd have, you know, a certain amount of respect, you know what I'm saying? 
but I, I, yes, you have, you have respect, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm following you here. What, what you're trying to say? Where you know where I wouldn't want to try to mess with the match or doing any kind of business with Andre or anybody of that stature. That you know that level of statue in terms of respect that's like okay. you know, i'm not even going to turn it into a shoe i'm not let me just go out and do what we need to do and go on down the road well yeah but maida was was actually known to be a real fighter uh, he would he would uh he would start his own uh, a few years later he would start his own uh shoe style uh wrestling promotion And, and and became that big uh, that big name in Japan. So so he he he, he was legit, and uh, you know he didn't like the fact that Andre wasn't selling for him. So he, he he hit harder. You know he wanted to prove yeah. that he wasn't he wasn't gonna fall down for anybody, including uh, including Andre the Giant. Uh, so, Makes sense when you describe and, it that way. But but. But but also that's that's the reason why Inoki ended up coming up to the ring and ended up stopping the match. And and I remember also that Maeda had looked to one of his corner men who was a, a more experienced wrestler and asked him if he could uh, if he could because I think Andre at one point in the match just lay down and, you know, told Maeda to, to, to pin him, you know, come on, just pin me, try to pin me. And, and Maeda looked at the, at his corner and his corner told him not to do it. So, so there was respect for Andre in, uh, in New Japan, uh, but, um, uh, but Maeda was just, you know, a young guy, a real fighter trying to, trying to build a reputation for himself. So Makes no, sense. he didn't. He didn't do it for the business. He did it for himself. But at the same time, that was that was Andre as well. You know, they were at one point in the match. They were both not cooperating with each other. Uh, so that's also why the match wasn't going anywhere. You know, people were not used to see to see MMA kind of matches back in in the mid '80s. So um, so at one point. Uh, it needed to stop just for the sake of the crowd's reaction, and and that's why you know he came to the ring and just decided to stop the the, the insanity. Makes total sense how he explained it like that. But uh, do you have a favorite Andre moment or match? Well, it's hard for me not to say WrestleMania three because I grew up with. Uh, Uh, you know, I started watching wrestling. I was six. That match happened. I was ten, so it was still early in 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 me being a, a wrestling fan. And uh, I must have rented that VHS ten times uh, <laughs> at the uh, video store, uh, both in French and English. I, I to this day I still own a copy of the, of the the French version of the VHS, the English version of the VHS a DVD copy of WrestleMania 3 because the, the only, the, the other reason why is that international wrestling was like three months shy of, of closing. And most, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the, 
the main stars that I knew from international wrestling were now with the WWS. So if you look at WrestleMania 3, you have Rick Martel, Dino Bravo, the Rougeau brothers, Tom Zank. You had a midget wrestler, Little Beaver. Uh, Edouard Carpentier and his partner and French Martin were doing commentaries on the French version of it. Uh, and obviously you had Andre the Giant in the main event. Plus, people may not know that, but Ogun and Andre was the first main event that sold out the Pulsova Arena, the smaller arena that international wrestling was using back in 1980. Uh, so that was the first main event that sold out the Pulsova Arena at the beginnings of the company. So Ogun had an history in Montreal as well. So, so when you look at everybody that was there, King Tonga was there as well, Haku, uh, as it was named in the WWF. So th- there were so many people that I recognized and I knew from uh, a few years earlier with international wrestling. It was kind of a closing for international wrestling to see WrestleMania 3 because all of its big, biggest stars uh, had switched the WWF to greener uh, greener country, right? And, uh, um, so, so Andre Ogan, it was, it was less, just larger than life. It was, it was such a, a well told story, uh, that as a kid, even though, you know, the match when you look at it now is not, uh, is not a match I would say it's a good match, but when I was 10 years old and, and you you don't know any better, uh, it was still a match that, that I'll remember for the rest of my life. So, uh, so it's, it's hard for me not to say that mo- that one. Even now, and like you said, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty as far as quality of match, but there's still a certain mystique about that match of Hogan Giant at that point in the game. Oh, definitely. And not only a mystique, but it's also a feud that kept going and, and 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 it's really talked like this and and we 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 do talk about this in the book but uh, the Ogun giant uh, Ogun Andre uh, rivalry was really the foundation of WWS pay-per-views when you look at, at how things uh shaped up um you have WrestleMania 3 which was a huge success of, of course both at the stadium and uh, on pay-per-view. And then uh, Andre had his back surgery, and he comes back, and the first Survivor Series hit on uh, Thanksgiving in 1987 uh, with Team Ogun against Team Andre. Uh, then uh, Royal Rumble, the first Royal Rumble was in 1988, and what was the biggest thing that people were talking about? A the contract uh, signing. Contract, the contract signing between Ogun and Andre for February 5th, uh, Friday night, uh, not Friday the main night, event. the main event, which was replacing Saturday night main event because it was on a Friday, but it, is, it was also the first time in years since the 50s that WWF, that wrestling was going mainstream on network television. You know, it was at 8, at 8 p.m., instead of the regular um, Saturday Night Lights uh, slot on Saturday night, you know, like at 11, 11, 30 p.m. So and it was a big deal, you know, and the matches to this day, the, 
the the, 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 the biggest ratings for uh, for a wrestling match uh, in North America. And then uh, you had WrestleMania Four, which was built around Andre and Owens rematch because he didn't know the main event since it was a a, a tournament uh, a tournament uh, final and the tournament was uh, you know on 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 that same night. So the only match you knew. For sure, and, and the only match that really piqued interest was Ogden and Andre. And finally, SummerSlam came in, the very first SummerSlam in 1988, and it was the... Can we blame Trump for the dropping of the international calls here? But what is the source? Oh, that's easy. No, no, no. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. But, uh, we're but blaming that's Trump then. What's important? Did you get yeah, all of my answers? We were getting to SummerSlam '88 when the call yeah. dropped again. Okay, so so I was saying in that SummerSlam '88, it was uh, it was the Mega Powers, Ogun and Savage against the Mega Bucks, um, Andre and DiBiase with Virgil in their corner. So that year and a half few they had really laid down the, 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 the foundation of three of what we call the big four pay-per-views to this day, plus the biggest ratings, plus two WrestleMania with very good numbers. So it's very hard not, not, it's very hard not to say that the Ogan Andre feud is one, if not the biggest or the most important uh, feud that uh, WWE ever ever produced. And I will say this because you mentioned this at the beginning of your uh, answer there about WrestleMania three, kids. Uh, if you are not at least thirty, you would not know what Pat meant with tapes such as VHS and stuff like that. They, it's things that actually used to be on tape, actual physical tape compared to what we see now with digital. So you might want to Google that. Just just Google VHS. Yes. And uh, you'll get a good idea of what we're talking about. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm old enough. I, ha- I still have VHS tapes. I even have a few uh, beta tapes. Oh, see, I never had beta tapes. Okay, we I got two up still. VHS. Now you got to mix going to mix up all the kids because they would say, well, yeah. there were two kind of VHS, there were two kind of, t- two kind of tapes, uh, and then it's like one didn't, uh, one didn't really, really work out in the long run, and the other one is the VHS. But I still have every WrestleMania from one to, uh, to 17 on VHS, plus uh, actually, uh, Survivor Series 1997, the Montreal Screwjob. I had that. Ah, that's, a whole, as well. that's a whole other thing we could get into. But, Pat, uh, where can folks find what you got coming up and what you're doing now? Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm still doing here in Montreal. I'm, I'm doing French commentary on Raw at WWE Raw. We have an hour of Raw every week. So I do that uh, here. I have a French podcast as well. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, we still, some, 
pitch something to ECW Press about another book. I cannot disclose more than that at this time, but hopefully uh, it will uh, it will interest people. At ECW Press have been so good to us for the past uh, uh, seven years, seven eight years. Uh, if you want to read more of my stuff, uh, you can go to uh, Amazon. Uh, and um, and search for Mad Dogs, Midges, and Screwjobs. That's the book on the history of Montreal wrestling. Uh, Mad Dogs, Maurice Vachon's story, which is a book on WWE Hall of Famer, uh, Maurice Mad Dog Vachon, Sisterhood of the Square Circle, that I wrote with Dan Murphy, uh, formerly from uh, Progress Illustrated, uh, the whole history of women's wrestling, and, of course, now the eighth wonder of the world, the true story of Under the Giant. If Amazon, you can find the book. Uh, it's just because with, with, with the, 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 the crisis that we live uh, right now, it's just harder to get copies shipped to Amazon's warehouse. Uh, but you can try uh, at, a, at another moment. Or you can go on Barnes & Noble and uh, and and in, in the in the U.S. or in Canada on Indigo.ca, and uh, usually they have they have some in stock. So yeah, and be patient, like you said, with the pandemic and everything going on. It might be a little delayed if you order online, but you will get copy. The book and all his projects are pretty fabulous. Pat, thank oh, you yeah, so much. Oh yeah, there's always there's always, oh, there's always the ebook. There's always the ebook version that doesn't take more than a few seconds to uh, to download if you're into uh, into ebooks. Uh, and uh, if you go to ECW Press website, you can actually buy the physical book. And while you're waiting for it in the mail, you can get the ebook for free. So that's uh, that's a pretty darn good deal. So uh, so you might want to check I that out. So. And and you also want to check me out on uh, my different social media, Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Pat Leprad. And we will put links to that on both ver- or on both versions of this, the audio version and the video version. Pat, thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts, there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies.
For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in Cell Block 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. writes this shit. Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you and cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jeff! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, this is Bruce Pritchard and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio and don't ever forget, I love 